Hello and welcome to The Age Stage, a program that looks at issues and matters affecting older Australians, made possible by our friends at Aftercare Australasia and Australian Unity. Good morning everyone, I'm Brendan Telfer. This week on the program we have Warren Haynes dropping by from Aftercare Australasia and Cheryl Brody with a second part of her special report on the intestinal system, microbes, bacteria and our health. We've now come to understand that the microbiome, especially in the intestine, is very much associated with maintaining health. And as we age, the intestinal microbiome and organ onto itself is also aging. We're losing bacteria. We're losing the, the variability and the abundance of bacteria. And as we age, this loss increases susceptibility to environmental chemicals, increases the disease burden risk, and is associated with the loss of this abundance of diversity that then changes the physiology and anatomy of the mucosal lining as we age. And also on the program this week, Paul Verstees joins us with concerns about the evolving power of government agencies to interrogate income streams and threaten them. And particularly as it applies to older people, who, and many of whom are not all that conversant with doing business online, to have this whole debt recovery program based online, uh, managed online, and interacted with online, is a potential nightmare. All that and a whole lot more this week on the Age Stage. And it's Thursday morning, and of course it is the age stage this uh, wonderful Thursday. Hope you're doing okay, 98.7, 98.3, made possible, of course, by Australian Unity and our good friends at Aftercare Australasia. And speaking of Aftercare Australasia, he's back. Warren Haynes is in the studio. G'day, Warren. Welcome. G'day, Brendan. A couple of things happening in the news cycle since we last spoke. One of them is just this extraordinary media release which has come out of uh, New South Wales, um, Booper Eden, a nursing home up there that had a series of uh, work standard breaches against it dating all the way back to 2018. In fact, it went up to some 30 failures against uh, some 44 standards. Um, has got its um, nursing home licence restored and it just throws up a bit of a conundrum for me. We've got this Royal Commission going on at the moment looking at standards and how we get into the aged care sector. Yet there's a, a major and quite significant breach here which seems to have um, escaped. I just wonder what's going on and what sort of standards are being applied. Yeah, look, Brendan, I, I think it does certainly raise some questions. I mean, it, just a bit of context. So Booper is one of the very large you know, corporate entities um, in the aged care landscape. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a company that has really substantial resources. So, so by way of contrast, for instance, you know, people might be, uh, the other bit that's been in the news um, not not that long ago was the uh, Earl Haven, um, you know, the closure of Earl Haven up in up in the Gold Coast. But by contrast, you know, that was a relatively small business outfit, and um, you know, you could perhaps argue that there were financial difficulties, and you know, the, none of that's been really established clearly. But that's what it looked like. And, you know, that's the impression I got was that it was a relatively small player that ran into some financial difficulties and uh, and couldn't essentially trade their way out of it. But Booper, on the other hand, I mean, you know, this is a company that's a multi multi million dollar company with. More, you know, plenty of resources well, and plenty of experience and, and running nursing homes. And 72 nursing homes Australia-wide, 11 are currently subject to compliance action. 
Yeah, which is a really high proportion. So again, uh, to me, the, 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 we just it just goes to show we haven't come far enough by a long shot. I, I do recall seeing um, an, an opinion piece not that long ago that was questioning the you know how effective the changes were going to be with you know that came in in July around the the new uh, standards and um, uh, quality uh, commission. Uh, which was again, you know, this is a revamp of the uh, what was regarded as a fairly toothless um, regulatory body um, in aged care. But the opinion piece that I saw was raising these concerns around the fact that it might just turn out to be very similar because of the culture that's there. And they were really saying, well, essentially, if you're getting the same people that were employed as part of the the previous regulatory body and you're just transferring them across into a new a new body and putting a new name on it, um, that even with the change in the standards, um, that it may just prove to be not enough. And I, I, unfortunately, I'd, I'd have to say this is really raising those questions for me around, well, surely we're in a new landscape now, that's what we're meant to be, um, it's meant to be something where we're taking these these uh, the quality of the care a bit more seriously, and for this to be an outcome, I certainly think there needs to be a lot more disclosure from both Bupa and, in fact, from the department about what was the basis of this decision, what what changes were in place, and and what lasting changes. It's very easy, and this is something that a lot of larger companies um, do, and I'm not suggesting for one minute that Booper is doing this, um, but it's something that is a known phenomenon where larger companies essentially develop an accreditation team that they sort of ship in um, just prior to the scheduled accreditation being due to all of a sudden, you know, bump up the standards and all of a sudden the meals, you know, you hear this anecdotally, you know, in the industry, all of a sudden the meals and the menu gets an upgrade and everything, the food's looking delicious and there seem to be far more staff on board because, again, I'll just remind our listeners, there's no mandated staffing ratios in nursing homes, in aged care homes. And so uh, people can, uh, companies can decide to put on a bare minimum that's that's not adequate or they can they can bump it up and they, this is apparently what a lot of them do is they they improve things for that week or two uh, before the accreditation's due so that everything's just humming along nicely the accreditors come in tick all the boxes see you later thank you very much we'll see you in 3 years time wow. um so you know yeah. it it's it, it's really just not working effectively pretty, enough. Pretty cynical. So I guess um, <laughs> the CPSA I see is calling for an independent audit mm. and reaccreditation of Bupa Eden. So I would say that's probably a, a pretty fair call given the circumstances, I would suggest. I, I just think there needs to be more information. And this was one of the things that has been sort of mooted. It will be interesting to see if it's... Uh, part of the recommendations that come out of the Aged Care Royal Commission is around disclosure because often what's really going on, unfortunately, for families and for older people in their decision-making, what's really going on in these aged care homes is hidden under the veil, the very handy veil of privacy. And there's there's a, a very strong case, I think, for a level of public disclosure about 
um, the not only not only the the uh, failure of compliance when it occurs, but but I think more importantly, what's being done to address those failures, and how do we know that it's as I said going to create some lasting change? Because it's you know it's all well and good to get a you know get a consultant in who's going to sort of again to sort of fly in and say oh well there's this 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 and this and you you need to address it, but they're not an ongoing member of staff. They're a consultant. They've come in, they're short-term, they'll see their goals are achieved and finish up. Well, what's happening in six months' time? That's the problem, I think. That is the problem. Well, let's um, leave that sort of rather sort of cynical treatment of the sector for a moment um, and, and move on to something a little bit more heartening. You've been watching a little bit of telly on the ABC and they've, they've trotted out a pretty intriguing concept, haven't they? What's going yeah. on? Yeah, look, uh, you know, full credit to the ABC, although <laughs> I have to acknowledge that the BBC, I think, uh, you know, developed this as a concept and the ABC is just sort of applying it in, a, in an Australian setting, however, very very worthwhile. So the 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 particular show is called the Old People's Home for Four Year Olds, and the idea of it is that they actually get uh, older people to engage with a group of um, four year old kindergarten students um, and and participate in some of their activities. So they're you know they're doing creative play and uh, using their imagination and going outside and exploring the world and often getting sort of almost I think uh, you know dragged around and and what they were apart from it being very entertaining television to watch mm. uh, what I think is really fascinating about it Brendan is it just goes to show how um, with that bit of social interaction. The all of a sudden the older people are being enormously more active. They're being enormously more engaged. Their their quality of life picks up, and I think I think that's what will you will see unfold based on the BBC experience in in the UK. Um, I think that's what we'll see unfold over the uh, the rest of the episode. So it's just started. There's another, I think there's another three episodes to run. It's screening on Tuesdays um, around eight thirty. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a plug for the ABC well, there. Well, or we can catch up on their iView. That's right. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing is that this whole area, and we've we've touched on this in the program in the past, where the the Dutch, I think, and some of the Europeans are particularly interested in trying to engage and get some of their older residents uh, really active and and part of uh, a new lifestyle yeah look i think i think one of the things that's that's um i suppose particularly relevant and why this is so important i think in in aged care um residential aged care so again you know we're just talking about residential aged care this is a good example of the direction that that residential aged care needs to be heading in because currently uh, the the uh, the evidence is that about forty percent of all uh, residents in aged care facilities receive no visitors whatsoever. That's Brendan. an outrageous statistic, isn't it? Absolutely, <clears throat> it's disgraceful. And uh, and 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 as a result, and and it's other factors as well, but but certainly, you know, the lack of visitors is a is a, a big. Um, is a big issue. Um, something like fifty percent of people in residential aged care express some, uh, sorry, show some level of depression or depressive symptoms. 
And again, you know, it, it's it's not just simply that they're in residential aged care, but it, but it's also often associated with this tremendous sense of loss that people have when they lose their family home because they have to move out. They often lose their pets, um, which which again, you know, we talk about loneliness. Pets are fantastic companions for anybody of any age, but in particular for an older person. Um, you know, there's, it's no accident that, that the concept of lap dogs has been developed mm. and it's because they're fantastic companions that, mm. you know, give someone some company, keep people company. We've got older people, uh, you know, who they regard their, their dogs as very much a direct extension of their family. That's the closeness of the relationship. So they lose their pets, they lose their sense of independence, um, so it's it's quite a profound change, and obviously, you know, I've got to put our little uh, little plug in for aftercare. You know, that's not what we're about. We're all about um, going to great lengths to make sure that people can stay at home and, and continue to and, stay and that's, engaged. That's the important thing. I was just about to say that continuity of lifestyle as well. I mean, you mentioned sort of moving out of the family home, losing contact with, mm. but staying within the context and the continuity of a lifestyle that you've enjoyed for thirty or forty years in a suburb, and all of a sudden you're ripped out of it. You have no visitation. Mm. The kids are interstate. They're overseas and stuff like that. Mm. I mean, the adaption for an older person must be huge. I think, I think for people that have been in an area, living in an area for a longer period of time too, there's a multitude of relationships that still maintain even as the person's abilities perhaps decrease. There's often still the local shops that even when people can't drive, they can still often walk or use their scooter um, to get to the local shops where they're still dealing with people who they've, uh, you know, dealt with for the last 10 or 15 or 20 years. And similarly, there's usually some sort of neighbourhood um, where there may even be a, a number of older people that have been in the area for the same level of time. And because they're not too far away, there's the ability, there's the opportunity to maintain those relationships. Whereas once you move into a residential aged care, unfortunately for a lot of you know your, your older friends, they may go, well, now it means I've got to catch a taxi or I've got to um, get someone to give me a lift to go and visit my old mate in the in the nursing home. And it just becomes a little bit of a barrier. And so it's a little bit more difficult and it just doesn't happen as often and as also it the like adapt- And also the adaptive capability and capacity of the people that are moving into the nursing home as well to be able to form and create new relationships and friendships. I mean, it's really hard to sort of to drop everything and then all of a sudden be in a new environment yes. and having to make new friends. I mean, it, it, it must be very onerous and very I, difficult. I, th- I think that the, the – and again, this is, this is what I would encourage people to look for when they're, when they're looking at, at residential aged care. You know, don't get taken in by whether the place has got a fancy foyer and beautiful chandeliers and, and you know, lovely polished brass on the doorknobs. Uh, really what you want to be talking to them about is what programs do you run here? What activities do you run? Do they have a specific um, process for introducing new residents so that they get opportunities to socially meet and, and engage and form those new friendships? And, and in their own time and in their own style as well because there are going to be nuances of different behaviours and expectations as well across a whole gamut of, of people. Yeah. Another really simple thing that you often see in the better-run better homes, in my opinion, is they 
say, uh, try and individualise the rooms and the areas a lot more. So uh, it's often a bit of a, a mistake for um, these larger buildings to be sort of laid out, a bit like a hotel where literally every room and every corridor can look the same. Mm. For someone that's new in that environment, it's quite bewildering and really difficult to orientate yourself, especially if you might have some minor memory issues or cognitive issues. And, and again, for earlier on this series of programs, we again, it was the Dutch, I quote, who've been using colour in those circumstances as well. And colour is very, very important in terms of being able to demarcate different parts of a building for people that might have a learning problem. Yeah, yeah. and look, uh, uh, again, the really, the really good uh, facilities will often have an arrangement where they have really distinctly different doors to their various um, uh, rooms in the facility so that people can very quickly orientate themselves to go, well, I, you know, my, my bedroom door is the blue room, blue door uh, and it might even have a – it might even look different. It might be more than just the change in colour. It might be a different style. But also they've, they've usually got slots in them all sort of pre-laid out to be able to – Put some sort of personalised decoration on there. It doesn't have to be, you know, the, the crude form of that is, you know, having a photo of the person, but a far more effective way is for the person to be able to hang something that's that they brought from home or attach something that they brought from home to the front door so that it's, you know, it says... This is my home when they walk up to it. Very simple things, Brendan. Very simple. But um, basically what you're trying to do at Aftercare Australasia is keep people within their own homes for as long as possible. They don't have to confront this sort of a reality and they have confidence where they are. Yes, and, and I think the other advantage in that, in that setting is that they're also surrounded by all of the precious things that they've accumulated over their lifetime. You know, this is another challenge with moving into residential aged care is it's a, it's a massive downsizing on, on a scale that's quite different from moving from a, a house into a unit even. You know, you, you're essentially moving your entire lifetime of possessions into a single room, which is... Very, very difficult. Um, and whereas if you're able to stay at home, then you've got all of those things. You've got all the memories that are associated with them. Um, you've got all of those those connections that that help you maintain your sense of well-being, but it also makes it very uh, easy for people coming into your home, so workers in particular, who perhaps don't know you all that well, very easy for them to establish a relationship with you because they can start talking about the, the photos on the wall. I was around at a, 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 a someone's house just the other day and they had these two beautiful little oil paintings on the wall and I, you know, they caught my eye. They were sitting in a prominent position. One was of a, a lovely sort of house sitting in a rural setting and the other was just a, you know, classic um, Australian uh, rural scene with some, some gentle rolling hills and a couple of gum trees and, uh, you know, a, a fence line off in the distance and a bit of blue sky. It was really lovely. And and straight away I ended up having a 10-minute conversation without any effort at all on my part um, with that, that particular couple because that's actually somewhere where they'd lived. And, um, and they were, you know, they got great delight in telling me all kinds of details about it. Um, so... You know, those things are just there right at your fingertips when you're working with someone in their own home. And that's what we like about Aftercare Australasia is that that little extra step that you guys take as you uh, roll out the care packages that you can provide in people's own homes. Ron Haynes, thank you very much indeed for joining us today on the Age, uh, age Stage. My pleasure, Brandon. We'll speak to you soon. Yep, look forward to it. 
You're tuned up to RPPFM. Warren Haynes, thank you very much indeed. When we come back, Paul Verstige on government agencies, robo-debt and the threat to income streams of older Australians. Many of whom are not all that conversant with doing business online. It's a potential nightmare. Hi, this is Megan Gale, and when I'm on the peninsula, I love listening to RPPFM. You've been listening to the age stage this Thursday morning. Always great to have your company. Can we move on to Paul Verstige, the policy coordinator of the uh, Combined Pensioners and Superannuates Association, and a concern that's been flagged by that association that could affect the income stream of older Australians, and I emphasize could. Robo agencies, whereby government agencies control data and match it against agency activity, has been getting some attention lately. The automated system designed primarily to detect welfare overpayments, and although the technology is struggling somewhat, I think, Paul Verstige, you probably have some misgivings about how this technology could be applied to older Australians in the future. Am I right? Uh, yeah, that's right. The, the debt recovery by Centrelink and its automated version, that's what robo-debt is, basically is, is a very rough way of... Um, of assessing whether people might have a debt and then writing to them via a computer a computer letter and asking them to explain why there is a discrepancy between what Centrelink has on record and um, <clears throat> what is on record elsewhere, you know, in your bank account, in your superannuation account or in your broker's account. So is this happening at the moment or is it proposed that it might? No, the, the Cabinet of the Federal Government has, has been briefed on how it how this, this program could be, could be extended to sensitive groups. And sensitive groups include uh, people on age pensions, disability support pensions and carer payments. And the, the, the thing is designed to, for, the, for the government to meet its budgetary uh, targets and they hope to, or were advised, they could, they could look forward to recovering about $660 million over the forward estimate. Um, so that's a significant amount. It is, certainly is. So basically it works by the fact that it can monitor what's going into your bank account. You might have li- very little control over that if the, uh, say, stock market and your superannuation is returning some pretty hefty dividends in any one quarter of one financial year. Is that how it works? Well, this is, this is our concern. As, as people who have to report to Centrelink now know, it's, uh, it's a very uncertain science uh, as to what you report uh, as the value of your of your investments if, if for example, you, you own shares. The, the reporting rules are not all that clear. And uh, once you introduce uh, a computer to, to, that, to that process, uh, which and a computer has to be very specific and it has to receive very specific instruction, there's, uh, there's potential for all sorts of, of mishaps and uh, misunderstandings where people have, um, have reported uh, things uh, as, as they should have. But the computer thinks... Otherwise. Well, indeed, uh, the track record so far needs obviously a little bit more work to finesse this machinery of government. I must say the Australian Privacy Foundation Health Committee Chair Bernard Robertson-Dunn has voiced his concerns about robo-debt expansion, saying it risked unfairly targeting vulnerable Australians. Well, that is true. If you are on a social security payment, it means that you that you receive assistance from the government, but by definition you are vulnerable and particularly as it applies to older people, who, and many of whom are not all that conversant with doing business online, to have this whole debt recovery program based online, uh, managed online, and interacted with online, it's, uh, it's a potential nightmare, and uh, uh, it's, it's why we are raising it now, so that hopefully it will 
I'm not often an advocate or a defender of government policy, particularly in matters like this, where maybe some injustice is being done, but I'm sure the government's going to be saying something along the lines it has a lawful responsibility to recoup uh, Social Security overpayments, and uh, those that have been wrongly paid need to get that money back to them ASAP. We agree. We agree with that. Um, it's just how you go about doing this. I don't think anybody disagrees that um, people should not be overpaid. And I think the, you know, the vast majority of people that are on Social Security payments agree with that as well. But it is the manner in which it happens where a computer does some comparisons, comes up with a discrepancy and lands Social Security recipients in all sorts of hot water. Uh, that is really our concern. And indeed, that could have all sorts of implications in terms of expectation of income and income allowances as well going forward if the machinery basically uh, puts a tick through your name. That's, that's correct. And you know, apart from the, from the dollar concern, it causes a great deal of anxiety among people who, who should, really should be left alone. And um, yeah, we, 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 would, we would want Centrelink to, to investigate, a person investigate whether there is really a case to answer before letters are sent out for her to people to please explain. Just quickly before we wrap up the program, Paul, any chance that pressure is being put on the government? Are they um, understanding and sensitive to some of these concerns and issues? Well, they would have rocks in their head um, if, uh, if they didn't. I mean, obviously the, the current Liberal National Government has hit uh, pensioners and a lot of park pensioners very hard um, when it, uh, it changed the asset paper rate and it was punished at the, uh, at the ballot box the next time the election came around. And that majority is not all that great. So if they are going to cause angst among retirees and pensioners, I think um, that would be a very, very foolish thing to do uh, electorally. And the Labour Party might have a couple of stories to tell as well about its election campaign, giving those franking credits issues a story that you broke at uh, your organisation. Um, well, I'm not sure we broke it, but... Uh the, uh, the, the franking credits uh, might come up at the next election. I think that, uh, that uh, the Labour Party would have to have rocks in its head if, uh, if it did, but I'm sure that uh, its detractors will, uh, will, remind, uh, will remind the Labour Party of what they once wanted to do. This is the eighth stage, and when we come back, producer Cheryl Brodie and the second part of her special report on bacteria, microbes, gut health and our well-being. Caring for a loved one can be very rewarding, but it can also be very challenging. Regis Rosebud offers short-stay respite care that gives you the time to re-energise knowing your loved one is in the best care. Book a four-week stay at Regis Rosebud and receive 50% discount off the daily fee. A massive saving for you. Terms and conditions apply. Call 1300 998 100 or visit www.regis.com.au. A station sponsor. Hello, good morning everyone and welcome to the Age Stage program. This is Cheryl Brody and today I have with me Louis Vetetta. Louis is a professor with the University of Sydney Medical School and he is also the Director of Medical Research at MedLab in Sydney. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Cheryl. How are you today? Good. Uh, it's a nice day. Nice day here uh, to be doing some research and uh, delivering some lectures in Adelaide. Fantastic. Okay, so today we're going yeah. to be talking about gut immune function in the elderly population, and also we're going to discuss 
antibody, antibiotic re resistance in some research that has just come out. Okay. So tell me a little bit, please, about your research into the gut. Okay, well... Over the, uh, over the last uh, two decades, we've been doing research in uh, the gastrointestinal microbiome uh, in my lab as well as others around the world. It's a very hot topic uh, to look at gut bacteria, and particularly those that colonise the large intestine. And what we have found is that there is an overarching influence of the intestinal microbiome on end organ function, end organ by, I mean, what I mean by end organs, I mean the kidney, the liver, the heart, uh, the lungs, and also the brain, whereby from the time of birth, humans experience uh, an induced regulated inflammatory beneficial response uh, uh, that is mediated by the bacteria uh, and, and, and and, and in this way, we're actually maintaining a relationship uh, with bacteria that makes us be very much a superorganism. Okay. And, and the bacteria early on um, at birth uh, initiate effects that eventually provide the infant and the future adult with immune tissue maturation. And this is very, very important for, um, for uh, immune function because the effects occur beneath an emergence immune system surveillance and antigenic tolerance capability radar whereby the immune system becomes mature over time and continuous and regulated interactions with the environment as well as the microbiome and that interacts with the host, especially in the gastrointestinal tract, um, becomes uh, a, a, an organ unto itself that is regulating and every moment of the day shaking hands with the human host to maintain equilibrium and health. Okay, now how did this um, research come about into the, the gut health? I, I think that it all began with the Human Microbiome Project that began in the early 90s. Uh, uh, it was a, an initiative whereby it changed the landscape. Early on when I began looking at bacteria, the idea was that every bacteria had, had, had to be sort of controlled and that the intestinal tract was just uh, a tube loaded with waste material and pathogenic bacteria, bacteria that actually cause disease. We now know better that we have now a map of a diversity and abundance in the human microbiome that is very much associated not only with disease at times when the balance, the equilibrium is altered, but it's also associated with health. And, and this is very, very important because we've now come to understand that the microbiome, especially in the intestine, is associated, very much associated with maintaining health. And as we age, the intestinal microbiome, an organ onto itself, is also ageing. We're losing bacteria. We're losing the, the variability and the abundance of bacteria. And as we age, this loss, increases susceptibility to environmental chemicals, uh, increases the uh, disease burden, uh, risk, and, uh, and, and is associated with uh, the loss of this abundance of diversity that then changes the physiology and anatomy of the mucosal lining as we age. One of the species of bacteria that significantly is reduced as we age is the bifidobacteria. 
Right. I think that's um, something that's familiar. The bifido, was that um, part of yogurt or...? It's, uh, it's, uh, the bifidobacteria are normally present in the intestine, but it's also a major um, uh, genera of bacteria that's associated with uh, probiotics, yogurts uh, that people consume on a daily basis all over the globe. And, and it's very much associated with maintaining health, especially in the elderly. Sure. And, and so what would and, be the outcome of your research? I think the part of our research uh, in the last two or three years is to formulate a bifidobiotic formulation that doctors and pharmacists can talk to their patients about, in particular if they are becoming fra uh, fra uh, frail, uh, they're losing skeletal muscle mass, as, as we all do as we age, and they are starting to see some symptoms that the immune system is not functioning properly and that they're subject to increasing risk of developing infections. And, and, and I think that this kind of formulation will actually help in actually improving uh, the, the, the health of the elderly, particularly when they are subject to uh, the flu uh, that happens on a yearly basis. And we promote the use of this bifidobiotic uh, probiotic formulation with uh, uh, the flu vaccine, enable, enabling uh, sub, well, patients to actually, uh, I, I guess, gain a better benefit uh, through the flu season that happens uh, you know, through the winter months. So why is it not enough just to rely on our diet alone? I think that a diet is part of the overall strategy. Prudent nutritional practices, some physical activity, particularly with the elderly, to do a little bit of uh, 10 to 15 minutes a day of weight-bearing exercises, uh, uh, good quality sleep, and managing stress, because stress happens daily for everybody. Sure. No, nobody, nobody that I know that is alive has no stress. Everybody's got something going on in their lives. And so it becomes very, very important to manage the daily perturbations that actually happen that can influence adversely the gut bacteria. Okay, excellent. And how does the antibiotics interfere and what, what relationship do they have? Well, well this, is a very, this is a very important uh, question today uh, in the research uh, that's happening globally on the use of antibiotics. Antibiotics are a very good uh, medications to curb infection and, and, and we will always uh, be promoting the use of uh, pharmaceuticals in order to improve the health of individuals. Uh, the, the, the use of probiotics has come under a lot of scrutiny because what they tend to do is alter uh, the variability and abundance of the intestinal microbiome that puts people at risk for developing a chronic disease. And very recently, in the journal Gut, it was shown that oral antibiotic use increased the risk of colon cancer in a survey of, uh, of uh, almost 20-odd years in the United Kingdom in a matched case control observational study. And this is very, very inter interesting relationships because it actually shows that there is some suggestion that antibiotics may adversely affect the gut microbiota 
by reducing those beneficial bacteria that tolerate the host, that are talking to the host on a daily basis and increasing the risk of developing some sort of cancer in the colon. Okay, so that research that's come out supports what you've been saying today. Yes, we've been look. We've been talking about this kind of thing for decades with my colleagues in in uh, in Melbourne and in Sydney, and I think that we're all now starting to realise that uh, we need to protect the intestinal microbiome even when we are prescribing antibiotics. And perhaps one of the ways to do this is to not necessarily go and buy a probiotic or whatever it is, but actually to go and talk to a doctor about what the risks are and then put into practice prudent nutritional practices uh, that may involve the use of a probiotic of some sort where the doctor now properly educates the patient on what the risks are. Where can people find out more information well, I think that um, I think that if anybody uh, would like to look at the MedLab web page uh, or the University of Sydney web page where I am on and the publications that we have, I'm quite happy to email any of the papers that we produce to anyone that sends me an email. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you again this morning for your time, Lewis. I hope that Adelaide is good to you and the weather's thank lovely. You. And um, We'd uh, be delighted to hear from you again. Please keep us informed on your research projects. Absolutely. Thank you for your time, Cheryl, and your interest. Pleasure. All the best. Have a great day. You're tuned to RPPFM. This is the Age Stage, our weekly program that looks at issues and concerns for older Australians. When we come back, the 2019 Australian College of Nursing Practitioners, their annual conference and the evolving and very important role nursing plays in the aged care sector. We'll be speaking with the ACMP President, Leanne Bowes, in just a moment. This is the Age Stage on RPPFM, proudly sponsored by Australian Unity and Aftercare Australasia. Good to have your company this Thursday morning. Well, a busy week looms for the Australian College of Nursing Practitioners. Their annual conference runs in Melbourne next week between the 3rd and the 5th of September. There, some of the countries and indeed the world's top professionals will be delivering papers under the banner Transforming Health Care. And I thought this a wonderful opportunity to speak with the Australian College College of Nurse Practitioners President Leanne Bowes. Leanne, thank you for interrupting what I guess must be a very busy week for you to join us on the H stage. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Wonderful, Leanne. Well, I guess obviously the conference has a very broad ambition, transforming healthcare, but we at the age stage are particularly interested in nursing as it affects older Australians, and I see that uh, you'll be definitely addressing that matter as well next week. Yes, we're actually very interested in making changes in aged care and positive changes and also in palliative care and also recognising that often both need to be addressed at the same time. So what initiatives are there being made in the nursing field as far as nursing for older patients is concerned? Well, there is currently an MBS or Medicare review happening, which if it's successful as proposed will enable nurse practitioners to visit residents in aged care facilities but also enable them to visit people in their homes before they reach um, residential aged care 
and do some um, care planning, care coordination and also treatment of various medical conditions. This obviously is the emphasis of the government, very keen to keep us in our own homes for as long as possible. You would probably then get involved in that discussion about how long a person could stay at their own home. Absolutely, and the evidence is there if if you are able to look after people in their own homes. Obviously, they have a much better quality of life, but also it often comes down to dollars and cents, and it is actually more economically sustainable to keep people in their own home as well. Yes, it is very interesting. We have, in fact, a, a listener here, a very regular listener to us at uh, PFM. I don't want to name her, but I can tell you that she's over 100 years of age. She lives at home. She has some fantastic support, but she says she absolutely loves it. She prefers to stay at home rather than to be moved into some sort of a facility. I think most of us would, and I think, too, a lot of us, when we're developing as nurse practitioners, we think about our own families and our own experiences as nurses and what services we'd like to have provided for us. And a big role for us is actually advocating for the people in our community and designing services to fit. Leanne, I'm also wondering about the impact of technology. Are we seeing any improvements in what sort of services you can provide in the nursing sector with the advent of computer power and technology? Well, there are there are obviously um, advantages, particularly with becoming what I usually refer to as a mobile practitioner, so somebody that actually visits people where they are rather than expecting people to come to you. And with the resources that we now have, um, we can take those with us into the home or wherever we may need to be, um, along with um, software, medical software and, and other devices that, that we may need to assess and manage their health problems. I would also say there's probably some good devices that uh, you can probably tap into in the very near future that would be available at the home as well. You could probably just download data and stuff, information about patient well-being, which would bring you up to speed very, very quickly on their condition or what, whatever. Absolutely. And that's really we need to become a much more mobile workforce um, in order to meet people's needs. So here at the age stage, of course, we've had some wonderful discussions uh, with the nursing fraternity, and but particularly some amazing discussions on the program with palliative care carers. It's a specialisation, I guess, that's driven by some very special people as well. Definitely, and we're really, really proud that a number of um, people are making um, significant inroads into palliative care in Australia are actually nurse practitioners. Uh, one of our um, nurse practitioners has received an Order of Australia um, this year for her work in Canberra, um, specifically in palliative care in the aged care setting, and a number of our um, members and nurse practitioners are part of that team as well. Would that be Nikki Johnson you're talking about? Absolutely, yes. So Nikki's um, going to be quite a feature at our conference. We're really, really proud that um, nurse practitioners are out there affecting such change. Um, and look, this change is, is desperately needed. So your conference then running next week between the 3rd and the 5th, big occasion, lots of great speakers, and it would be, I think, pretty amazing couple of days. Yes, look, it's, it's really hard to know, um, 
you know, uh, which way to look at these conferences. There's so many outstanding and amazing people and there's a lot of inspiration in one place. So I'm really looking forward to it. Should be fantastic. One last question for you, Leanne. Can nursing be taught? I think the skills in nursing can be taught. Um, the passion for nursing that you need um, is something that, that, look, I think it's part of it needs to be there from the beginning, but I think part of it yeah, we develop through our experiences with patients and families and our experiences as nurses actually further inform our development. And, and quickly, before I let you go, um, the Royal Commission, you've, have you had much input into that in terms of your future roles and where you would hope to place yourselves going forward? Absolutely. So we are involved. We're very involved um, in a number of ways. We are attending um, at any opportunity and giving evidence. We're also heavily involved in um, other consultations that are happening around the country. It's certainly fair to say that there's a lot going on at the moment in health in Australia. Um, so we're, we're trying to stay in touch with everything that's happening so that we get to contribute our views, especially from that nursing point of view. Leanne Bose, thank you very much indeed for taking some time to talk to us on the age stage today and, and good luck with uh, transforming healthcare. Nurse practitioners um, doing it, getting together next week here in Melbourne. Should be a, a great couple of days. We appreciate your time on the program today. Good luck to you. Thanks very much for having me. Leanne Bowes, President of the Australian College of Nurse Practitioners, ahead of their big national conference next week, and we'll certainly be keeping a bit of an eye on that one. And that is just about it for this week's edition of The Age Stage. I thank you very much indeed for your company today. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Aftercare Australasia and Australian Unity. I would also like to acknowledge our guest this week, Ron Haynes of Aftercare Australasia, for dropping by Paul Verstige the Policy Coordinator of the Combined Pensioners and Superannuates Association, Leanne Bowes, President of the Australian College of Nurse Practitioners, ahead of their big national conference next week, and of course our producer, Cheryl Brody. And if you do live locally, a reminder about that free community forum, which we mentioned last week with the Commissioner for Senior Victorians, Jared Mansour. It's on at the New Peninsula Community Theatre. That's at 370 Craigie Road, Mount Martha, on March 5th. See you there. Thank you very much, everybody, for your company today. I'm Brendan Telfer. We will be back in seven days' time. Speak to you then.